thanks for pressing play. As you know, context is everything. And around here, we believe that thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. So, if you want to design a different future, if you want to move the world from the old way to a new way, the way you frame, that is to say the context, your thinking matters. On this episode, one of the biggest brains that I know, Kevin Maney, is back. He's the co-founder of Category Design Advisors, where he and his partners advise CEOs on how to design and dominate market categories. And he's also one of the godfathers of category design because Kevin, as you probably know, is one of the co-authors of Play Bigger uh, with Al Ramadan and me. Today, we talk about a lot of things that are going to help frame your thinking. The end of friction, network effects, data effects, what Kevin calls the end of marketing, why the barriers to entry for category design keep dropping, and why category design, that is to say the ability to create different futures, is more important now than it was in 2006, uh, excuse me, 2016, when Play Bigger came out. And we talk about something called the adjacent possible and a lot more. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And some podcast reviewers call us overrated, not worth it, and offensive. No matter what you call us, we are the real dialogue podcast for business people who value real, different conversation. My friends at Malibu Milk are the leaders in whole plant organic flax milk. And if you're into different alternative milks, Malibu Milk is what you want to try next. So go to MalibuMilkWithAY.com and uh, pick up your first order. And on checkout, use Different15 uh, to get a discount of 15% on your first order order. I drink it every day and I think you're going to love it. My friends at NetSuite are the leaders in providing a platform for growth for legendary businesses. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And I would encourage you to go to amazon.com and type in category pirates. And what you'll see is a collection of uh, mini books from us um, that are sort of like uh, HBR. If HBR was written for and by pirates. Now, hey ho, let's go. Kevin Maney, <laughs> always stoked to see you. Oh, always stoked to see you, Chris. Of course. <laughs> How's that? How's that giant cranium of yours cranking this morning? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's like an old car. It takes a while to start. In the morning. <laughs> well, uh, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of reflecting of late. And uh, it's hard to believe it's now been a little over five years since Play Bigger came out, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Five years, June of 2016. Yeah. And so uh, all of us, of course, have been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of learning, a lot of practicing in category design um, since that time. And so uh, I know there's a couple of ahas that you've been landing on of late. And so I'm, I'm stoked to get into them with you. Where would you like to start? Yeah, well, I mean, that's true. And you, I, you know, I know you've discovered the same thing. And I'm sure Al and Dave have too. I mean, it's 
five years is a long time to be kind of working in this pond. And, you know, and we've, I mean, we've all learned a lot. Um, actually, what we, we should probably all four of us get together and figure out what we've all learned separately. And we could probably, you know, have a big pile of new thinking. Um, but, you know, I, as, I, as I've listened to the companies we've, we've been with and, and watched what's happened and what people have reacted to and how the industry has changed in five years, um, there's a handful of things that I, I've come to, to see as, as um, big drivers of uh, why category creation and category design is so important um, that we, you know, we maybe touched on some of in the book, but didn't really, really dig into. Um, and so I tried to frame those up uh, to, you know, to try to, um, as we, you know, talk to clients to give them other, other things to think about and other reasons why this is so, so key and so important. Yes. Um, and, and, and obviously the world has changed pretty uh, radically in the last five years. And, you know, one of the things that I don't know that we talk too much about in Play Bigger is that new categories create new categories. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, and obviously maybe stating the obvious, accelerated uh, because of COVID, the amount of category breakthroughs that are happening based on technology, breakthroughs ba- based on breakthroughs and various thinking. And so we seem to be in this time of radical acceleration, a category NATO, so to speak, of new ideas, new technologies, new products, and, and new approaches to bringing those ideas and products and technologies and obviously categories to the world. Well, yeah, I mean, well, definitely. Well, and, and you know, and you know me, Chris, I mean, like I, I, I'm big on history and have written a lot about, you know, historical stuff. And, um, and it's, you know, and one of the things that always happens is in these times of like crisis or radical change, whether it's the war or, you know, a pandemic or, um, you know, things that, that um, truly shake up the world. There's a, you know, everybody starts doing things in different ways or looking for new solutions. And it really, it totally opens up the possibility of creating new things and new categories that didn't exist before solving old problems in new ways or, or, or addressing problems that have never existed before that arise because of what's going on. And so, yeah, I I completely agree with you. It's like just this, been this radical explosion of stuff. Um, And especially, especially around things like healthcare um, technology that's, that's changing that. I mean, that's been a huge driver, Um, but all across the board, you know, um, business travel, look what's happening to that and will it ever come back? And I'll sort you know, it's one thing on top of another. Uh, Yeah. Well, in terms of business travel, you know, look, I, I get the human desire to get together in person with each other and give each other a hug and, and do stuff. Of, of course, that's important. And of course, um, many of us want to see some of that come back a- at the same time. I don't know about you, but I think it's awesome that you can do a keynote speech from your house in Australia. Oh yeah. And yeah. I think it's way better than getting on a fucking plane and going there. Not that I don't love Australia, but you know, you could go do your speech 45 minutes later and get back in the house and get on with your day. And you did it in your board shorts and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty incredible. And, um, and, you know, and I'm with you. I mean, look, I, I, I mean, I used to travel quite a lot and if that were cut in half, you know, that would, because I didn't, you know, some of these meetings that were like one meeting plane trip for one meeting and could change, you know, change that to a zoom call. I mean, that's great. And so one of the things you've been thinking about, and I know doing some writing on is this thing you call the end of friction. (laughs) And, um, you know, we were talking a little bit before we press play here about some things that are going on in the publishing world and 
um, some of the idiotic bullshit in the business media world. Um, but I, I, I'm curious, what, what, is, what are your current thoughts on the end of friction? Yeah, well, so this was one of the, like, I, I put together four things that I thought really were changing um, the nature of category creation and category design. And so one of them is, you know, you and I talked about it, as you, and you just brought up with this end of friction idea. So like, I, I go back to, here's an easy example. I, I, you know, I was a newspaper reporter for the first, you know, half of my career. And, um, and I originally went to work at the newspaper in Binghamton, New York. Binghamton had two, two newspapers in this tiny town of, you know, 80 or a hundred thousand people. And, uh, um, and so back in that, you know, that era, go back to the 1980s, late 1980s. Um, if you were in Binghamton and you wanted to get timely news, you had a choice between those two newspapers that were printed there in Binghamton because there was this enormous geographical friction of you had to um, print, the, print the newspaper on paper and then you had to truck it and deliver it and throw it on people's porches and all of that. And yeah, you could get the New York Times, but you get the New York Times a day later because it would come in from a truck from New York. Um, and so the, uh, the, you know, the category king for news in Binghamton, New York was going to be one of those two newspapers and you didn't really have a choice of any other. So now look, you know, fast forward all this time to now, and, you know, I could pick up this and, and get the New York times or wall street journal, or whatever I think is the best news source in the world, BBC in the UK, maybe. Um, and I can, I can get it instantly, get timely news right here and now. And so what ends up happening is people tend to, when, the, when that friction is removed, people tend to gra gravitate towards whatever they perceive as the category leader, the best thing in that category. And th then over time, that category leader is picking up more and more business and revenue and starts to reinvest and, and continues to increase that lead. Well, we've had like something like 4,000 or 8,000 for what the number is, newspapers um, close in the US, local newspapers, because now everybody can choose the category king of news. They're gonna go see get the New York Times. Maybe the Wall Street Journal depends on their point, what they're looking for. And and ditch all of these, you know, second tier Detroit news, Fort Lauderdale, whatever it is, you know, those those kinds of newspapers. And and so if you see that happening in industry after industry, you see that happening in retail, it's happening in education. Look, you used to have to go pick a school to go away to. And now, you know, increasingly with what we're seeing, saw you talk about what happened in the pandemic, people have learned that you can get an education by going on Zoom. Um, and, and so the more that the friction of geography disappears, the more we can all choose the global or at least national category leader of any particular category. So um, that makes it all the more important um, in whatever business you're in to try to be that category leader, or you're really just going to get sucked down the drain. I'm sure you've read some of the things that I have, you know, if you think about this in the education space, as you mentioned, that there is a prediction or there are predictions out there that say thousands of universities are going to go down mm -hmm. because to your point, if the new paradigm is I can go to Harvard or Stanford or, or, or wherever I want to go uh, digitally, then, you know, why would I go to community college, blah, 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 in yada, yada America when I could go to a top tier school and, and um, you know, do it in my pajamas 
from uh, from Fargo, North Dakota. Yep. And, and and by the way, you know, as as these things shift like this, what ends up happening? Like, so you you know, there's so there's always the first tier version of something new like that where you basically take what was the old um, means of doing something and just graft it onto this new technology. So that's basically going to a class by Zoom. But if you look at what's going on with with um, entities like Khan Academy, like Khan is Khan, um, and for your readers. Are, don't know, probably most of them do, but that's this online courses that started, I don't know, 15 years ago as just YouTube, you know, tutor courses. But now like what Khan's doing is it's developing AI so that um, if I'm using a Khan course, um, the AI watches what I'm doing and understands the pace I'm learning at and can know whether to slow down and go back or whether to speed up and, you know, and, and skip ahead. Um, or, or direct me to some other, you know, some other offline help. Um, and, and so you start layering on new technologies like AI onto um, classrooms, you know, via video, and you start getting something that looks very different from what college used to be, but becomes a new category of education that is going to absolutely devastate the old category of education over time. And, and all those second tier schools are going to close because of this kind of stuff going on. Well, and the interesting thing is, um, of course, back in the dot-com days, there was a word that was talked about a lot that we don't hear much about today. And that word was disintermediation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing is there's way more disintermediation today than there ever was back in the dot-com era. And, and, and the other part of this I see is... Um, the value of being associated with some institution is decreasing. So, for example, uh, we recently had on Folly or Different this gal who I kind of fell in love with named um, Joanne Molinaro. And she was a high-ticket, high-priced lawyer. And she, she's um, originally uh, from Korea. She's of Korean descent. And Molinaro, she had married an Italian guy. Anyway, long story longer, her husband was vegetarian and he sort of talked her into trying it. And so as she started to try to become a vegetarian, she realized that many of the dishes she loved growing up, uh, Korean dishes were not available in vegetarian uh, form, so to speak. There was no source for that. So she started trying to invent shit that would be that. And then she tried to do Italian shit that was vegetarian. Anyway, long story, way longer. As she started experimenting with this stuff herself, she decided to start to share this stuff digitally. Well, she started a food blog called the a Korean vegan mm -hmm. and she started doing TikTok videos that were fun and creative and, you know, beautifully uh, shot. She was into photography and this and that. Anyway, she has left her career as a lawyer and is now full time. The Korean vegan, her, her first book just came out. She's got millions of followers on social and everybody in the world loves her and wants to do shit with her. And she left a very big high paying job as a lawyer and has this whole new, so, so the point being that on one hand, there's the digitization of the top tier journal and times and all those things. But then there's this, this, this explosion in micro categories mm -hmm. where she becomes the category queen of a Korean vegan cooking. And by being so niche oriented, um, she explodes digitally. And, and, and so now if you're learning, if you want to learn cooking, you don't necessarily have to go to some ding dong culinary school. 
you could subscribe to her, and I'm sure there's many others that I'm not aware of who are unbelievable, and you can train yourself on TikTok, YouTube, podcasts, uh, courses, master classes, and you can sort of curate and collate your own ongoing education in this new digital world. No, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, we, yeah it's, it, create, it, it creates all these subcategories under the bigger category of just, you know, news and information, right? Like, uh, and, and technology makes that possible. In fact, if you want to talk about the end, end of friction in a different way, um, you know, look, you know, 25 years ago, if you wanted to make a video, uh, you had to buy all this equipment and learn how to edit tape and, you know, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And then uh, technology comes along and gives you a way to just use a phone to shoot something, you know, in your bedroom and put it on YouTube and, you know, 5 billion people can see it. I mean, that's that's an insane decrease in friction and allows for the creation of these new categories and allows for a niche player like, you know, the Korean vegan um, to uh, to uh, find her audience everywhere in the world, right? Not just in some little location or some little pocket. And, you know, that's why she's got probably millions of followers. And I bet they're global. Uh, they, of course they are. And I'll never forget the day that um, Jamie J, who does the sort of the technical execution around here of, of our podcast, he said to me, um, hey man, do you know we're downloaded in 190 countries? Now, some of those countries we have one download in, just to, just to be clear. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure uh, that, that, uh, that our, our listener base in Uganda is a huge one. But regardless, that is the actual number. And it's a stunning thing, to your point. The other thing, on, as a side note, you know, I, um, you know how when your, your iPhone starts developing new features that you don't like, it's sort yeah. of telling you it's time, right? And so my phone has been doing that for the last couple of months, and I knew the new iPhone was coming out. So I've sort of been hoping that the new features on my phone won't be so catastrophic that, that I can, you know, it, you know, I'm sort of managing the end of life of one for hope for the new one. Anyway, so I ordered the new one. It's on the way. Did you happen to see the Apple launch um, and what they showed about the video capabilities of the new iPhone? I did not. So tell me. Well, essentially, I, I forget who they brought on and da, da, da. So you'll excuse me for, you know, not having all the details. But the net of what they showed is that not only can you shoot a movie today on the new iPhone, you can shoot a whole new paradigm of movie. So because um, you can put the, the iPhone camera in different places at different angles. So they, I remember they, ha they showed how they were shooting like a war scene or something. And they shot it from the ground because you can put it on a stick, on a selfie stick, and show, you know, coming across the mountain and the horses and the dirt and the mud and all this stuff. And the mud gets on the lens. And it's, it's an angle, in this case, a lower down angle kind of looking up. Just like with drone footage, it's an angle we hadn't seen heretofore. And the producers of this piece were saying how, you know, in the past, you would never put a movie camera there because what if it got broken or what, if, you know, and in the case of an iPhone, it, 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 the new ones can take some water, can get mud on them. And, you know, if they break, well, sure, they're 1200 bucks or whatever they are, but that's a whole lot cheaper to your point than a movie camera. And so now... You know, it's very clear that you can create a high quality, what we would heretofore called movie, 
with a handful of iPhones and use some really cool angles and really cool features to bring a visual experience that um, heretofore was not possible. Yeah, And so it really, it made me think, wow, we are on the precipice, just like with podcasting, it blew to smithereens, the old radio model that anybody could have their own radio show, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is the new Steven Spielberg going to be somebody who creates movies this way? Of course. It's pretty obvious, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so in this end of friction idea, how do you connect that to, you know, you've written now a couple books in this theme of being unscaled. Um, so, so how do you think about unscaling and this friction free world and maybe connect those dots for me? Well, the, the, the idea behind unscaled, um, uh, this kind of grand historical sweep of that, um, was that, um, the the technologies that we um, that got created in this huge burst um, around the turn of the you know 19th century into the 20th century and we're talking about electrification we're talking about the invention of the car the airplane um, the telephone um, you know all of these all of these things hitting us all pretty much at once and if you think about all those things you know in transportation and communication and electricity those were the inventions that allowed companies to scale up for the first time, to create like giant corporations and giant manufacturing plants that could run 24 hours a day and ship stuff anywhere in the world. And so over the course of the 20th century, the idea became to um, create economies of scale, to make the most of the same thing for the most people as you can. Mass markets, mass production, mass media, it all came out of that kind of thinking. So then we hit like, the early 2000s, and we invent mobile computing, or you know, cell phones, iPhones, smartphones, um, cloud computing, um, and and we start to develop AI and things like 3D printing and all of these other technologies. And to your, this is exactly to your point about niches, um, that all of that allows um, anybody to become a small niche operator and start to pluck pieces of that scale out from um, what used to be giant integrated corporations. In fact, to bring back your word disintermediation, that's part of exactly what's going on, right? You used to have these like integrated giant, you know, entities that were um, created to take advantage of scale. And now anybody can, um, can create these unscaled companies that, uh, that, that are addressing a, uh, a small or very even individually uh, like, you know, customized kind of audience at scale and do it inexpensively so that, that they become the more powerful businesses because they're cheaper to operate. They can, um, using AI, they can get to um, understand the audience better and uh, create products and services that are feel like they're tailored specifically to those individuals. And you get something like the Korean vegan um, who comes along and, and essentially plucks out of what used to be maybe a CBS that had a cooking show or a Wall Street Journal, which had a, you know, recipe called Rachel Ray on TV. Right. Right. And, and creates a, this, a, 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 this huge global niche business, unscaled business out of all of that. Um, and so that, that how, that's how those things connect to each other. And, and then to, to bring it all the way back to category design is because in any one of these individual categories, 
everybody can access there's no because of the lack of friction everybody in the world can access what is perceived as the best in that particular category so everybody in the world will and if you're the second best or you're the third, you're the third best you're shit out of luck um because that's just not the way the world works anymore so interestingly enough so i'm curious as to your thoughts about this you know in play bigger of course we did uh, al led the data research project that sort of yielded this aha that said that in the tech space, at least, and it, it, it's pretty clear it's happening in, in more broadly everywhere, that one company earns 76% of the total value created in the market category. And so it, it was it's increasingly a winner-take-all game. Mm-hmm. And so the aha when I think about that what you're talking about, the end of friction, is when the creation of something new and the distribution of something new, when the costs to do that come down so dramatically, so quickly, the cost to create the Korean vegan and distribute the Korean vegan is a lot different than the cost to create the Rachel ratio, right? Right, right. So when distribution and creation costs go to almost fucking zero, we see this unscaled, frictionless, explosion. And so I'm curious how, like from a purely category design perspective, when the cost of creation and distribution are running to zero because of this new native digital world, how does that sort of inform your thinking as a category designer? Um, well, I, I mean, for one thing, it, it, it adds a sense of urgency um, to any you know, any company that we start talking to about category design, it's like, well, there is a, um, a, I think, a heightened sense of need to do it, a heightened sense of urgency to do it as soon as possible. Because if you, um, and as we wrote about it in, in the book, Chris, is that, you know, these cognitive biases kick in pretty quickly once a category leader is identified uh, by the public. And if you're not it, you're going to have a hell of a time on seeding that, that, that category winner. And so I honestly can't say that it's changed the nature of how I would help a company do category design. It's changed the nature of how important it is and how urgent it is, in my mind anyway. I don't know. What what do you think? I I think that's absolutely right. I think that the core tenets of category design haven't changed um, at all. I do think what has changed is the speed of innovation and therefore category creation and design is accelerating at a rate that we could never have predicted five years ago. Mm-hmm. And COVID times the cloud times mobile computing times AI um, right. is some kind of multiplication I can't do in my head, but I can't do any multiplication in my head. But it's very clear that, uh, you know, the exciting thing about being alive today is it is apparent to anybody paying attention. This is the most creative and innovative time in history. Now that can be overwhelming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think you're right on the urgency because the opportunities are appearing because of headwinds and tailwinds that are natural and the opportunities for us to be the creator of the opportunity, if I could have bat that way, not just capitalize on a headwind or tailwind, although of course that's important, but also be the the creator of a new uh, headwind or a new tailwind and a new headwind for the old way mm-hmm. uh, is greater than ever. And so I think, I think the, the urgency 
of getting in the game in whatever domain you want to play in and, and, and working hard to create that niche that becomes a giant category. I think that idea is more powerful and more potent today in an era of exploding creativity and innovation than it was five years ago. Yeah. You know, and as we're talking about this, I, I hadn't really thought about this before, but it, it just occurred to me is that putting all these things together as, as the friction drops, friction to create and friction to distribute drops, um, it, it takes away pretty much any excuse for um, going into someone else's category. And, you know, and as you and I, like have said over and over and over again, right, you don't, you know, you, the, the stupidest thing you can do is go is start a company and say, we're going to play in this person's company's category because there's room for everybody. Well, there's not room for everybody. Um, and, and if I, we're sitting down with a company today and that were the conversation we're having, you know, you'd say like, well, then, then let's, let's, spot and 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 define and create an adjacent category that's all yours because there's no there, there's so little barrier to being able to do that um and and so the you know the excuses for not doing it are are being eliminated yes 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 the aha here i think is the barriers to entry for being a category designer have lowered radically since we wrote play bigger yep and the other one, of course, is what's doing this is the radical shift from an analog first world to a, a native digital world, a, a, a digital first world, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I go back to Joanne and, and, the, and the Korean vegan, it's, she's a digital innovation. She's a digital category designer. Now, she's launched an analog book as well as a digital book, of course. But the scale and barriers to entry in the digital world have lowered radically. And so the speed with which we can um, innovate around new categories and the barrier to entry around creating new categories and innovative digital, native digital products and companies, and therefore native digital categories. I mean, look, five years ago, could we have possibly imagined that people would be selling gifts on the internet for 25 million bucks? <laughs> right. 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 Now, you've also been writing, Kevin, about um, sort of how this sort of um, uh, end of friction is sort of multiplied or you'll tell me how you want to think about it, but by network effects and data effects. Mm -hmm. And I, I think all of us have come to a conclusion today that it's almost impossible, maybe impossible, but let's, let's maybe kick this one around to build a category defining company without having a data flywheel, without having some kind of digital network effect. But I, I'd really be curious to think about how you're, or to hear about how you're thinking about these things. Well, yeah, and, and those, those two, I mean, they were certainly around and well-defined long before we wrote the book, but it's just amazing how important they've become. And um, so now, you know, I mean, network effects, um, you know, this going, going, going back to Metcalf's law, right, that, uh, um, that the value of a network is exponentially increased by, you know, the addition of every new user, um, which, you know, essentially means that if anytime, you know, you get on a network, you increase the value for everybody else who's on the network. Um, and, you know, that's why Facebook is a, you know, such a, a intransigent, you know, entity at this point, because, you know, the value to face to every user of Facebook is the other 3 billion people on Facebook. Um, 
and uh, but but then other companies, any kind of company that and we we encounter you you probably do too. Is so many companies are two sided marketplaces, an Uber and Airbnb, uh, you know, on and on and on, and um, and a two sided marketplace is a big network effect thing too because um, you know you you lure a certain number of let's say or Airbnb and you start lure a certain number of properties, then that's going to get a number of the certain number of users to. And then when the more users come, uh, the more property owners say, well, we're going to list on there because they have more users and that brings in more users and round and round and round um, as both the property owners and the users together, um, you know, increase the value of the site by just being there. And um, and so, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, a, a great um, category created creation company will look to create that kind of network effect. But more importantly, it exacerbates why category design and being the category winner is so important because if you're not the category winner in any particular category, you're not going to get all of the people and all of the, you know, both sides of those marketplaces adding to your, the value of your, your network and, and increasing your lead. So um, if you, you know, if you fail to become the category winner in some network effect category, you, you have no way of breaking that category winners hold on it and the, and data effects are something similar and that's and, and and that's made more more powerful by ai which you know i mean ai was around in getting going in 2016 when the book came out but it's nothing like has happened in the last five years and 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 now you know ai is basically driving everything and every kind of piece of software every app we're using every everything there's some version of ai behind it and and ai gets trained on its use and so the more users you have the more those people's actions train your ai and your ai gets that much better so then you're better than the competitors so you get more users and they train the data better and your ai gets better and you, you on and on and on so again if you're the category winner you get this enormous tailwind from these data effects that the other competitors don't get and in fact they lose more and more of it so again, if you're you know if you're you're in a category and you're not the one who's defining and dominating that category over time, you have because of network effects and data effects, you have very little chance of overtaking whoever is that leader. And and so, you know, it just again makes category design even more important and to get it right more important. Amen, hallelujah, brother. The other interesting thing about all of this, in my mind, is it sits in a context of this transition we're going through uh, from native analog to native digital. You know, as you know, if you take the boomers and Gen X and put them together, uh, call that native analogs, there's roughly 138 of them, 138 million of them in the United States. Interestingly enough, if you take the millennials and the Gen Zers and you put them together, there's roughly 140 million of those. And they, of course, have all come of age in the era of the smartphone, the cloud, and of AI. And they have a native uh, digital experience of life, which is 180 degree different than native analogs. And a buddy of mine, Andrew Smallwood, recently said something. He probably said it more eloquently than this, but he said, native analogs buy analog products digitally and native digitals buy digital products. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. 
And even with analog um, products, you know, my, one of my favorite new analog digital products that I really love is uh, I have a new e-mountain bike. And so it's an analog product. However, because it assumes the technology, you connect your smartphone to the bike and you, count, you, know, you track all your rides. Mm-hmm. And you share that with your network on the specialized network because it's a specialized bike. And of course, you can upload it even more if you want, if you're a Strava user. And so there's an interesting thing that the, you know, the folks at Specialized seem to have understood, which is, first of all, there's the obvious, which is digitizing an analog product. But I, I, that's the obvious. What's the less obvious, less obvious is what's more valuable to the consumer, to the user, the analog experience of riding or the digital experience while you're riding and after the ride? Mm-hmm. And I think, and I say this like an idea to bounce off of you, that the more native digital you are, the more value you place on the digital part of the analog experience of the ride. But I want to, I say all that and dump it on you and see what all that triggers in that giant brain of yours. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I would agree. I mean, that's, that's seems to be true. And, and I, I mean, and I, I, you know, to oversimplify probably, but you just think of like the native digital generation is so often consumed with, um, you know, having their, their life be a digital experience, right? You, know, you got to post stuff on Instagram and, you know, every place you go and everything you do. And, um, and, uh, and so it just increasingly becomes, um, you know, that you're living in the metaverse. And if you're living in the metaverse, uh, then the digital experience becomes as, as important as anything you're doing analog, right? And so, um, yes, amen. So, so here's the interesting thing. If you think about end of friction, you think about network effects, you think about the data effects, we'll get to the end of marketing in a second, and you think about all of that in the context of the greatest change in the category of human ever, Right. And why this isn't front page news everywhere all the time, I'll fucking never know. It's the biggest thing hiding in plain sight, right? That we have the first native digitals. There have never been human beings like this before. They are Mm -hmm. 180 degree different than native analogs. And so when you think about all of these things and then you sit down with a client who wants to design a new category, how do you think about these big ideas Particularly if you say category design is about creating a different future, and let's say we want to think at least, I don't know, you tell me five years out, then we have to be thinking about data effects, network effects, the end of friction, the massive lowering of uh, barriers of entry to creation and distribution of native digital products for Mm -hmm. native digital consumers. How does that inform if you sit down with a client uh, how does that inform the category design that you ultimately uh, work with them on on uh, authoring? Well, I, I mean, this, this may be a trite answer, Chris, but I think basically to put it a different way is that does inform what the, <laughs> the category conversation you're going to have. And to bring it back to something you and I have discussed before, that um, this idea of the adjacent possible. And so the... Um, 
This was from Stephen Johnson's book, uh, Where Good Ideas Come From. But he mm-hmm. talks about the adjacent possible, which is this, this narrow band between what's already here, um, what's possible, and then outside of that band is what's not possible yet. You know, that, and that's what technology is still not quite capable of doing, and we're not quite capable of understanding and accepting into our, you know, into our everyday lives. But new categories and new companies that can really build and create new categories are ones that find a way to land in that narrow strip between those two things, just beyond what's possible today, and yet not so far beyond that um, the technology doesn't work or, or or we don't get it. And so into this conversation about you know addressing the native digital audience and and all that, if if you're entering a, you know a category that um, you know broadly has existed in the past, and there's a lot of possibles there's a lot of there's a lot of things that already exist part of the conversation with 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 that that client is how do we push this idea out to the adjacent possible how do we push this out to where it feels slightly uncomfortable um but it's not science fiction and um and and that means taking advantage i mean like taking advantage if 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 we're talking about something that's not taking advantage of the you know the end of friction you know, uh, network effects, data effects, all of these things, then you're not, you're not sitting in that adjacent possible. You're sitting in the old school way of thinking. Um, and by the way, it's also just as important not to take that so far out that uh, we're talking about something that's not really going to happen for 10 years. Um, because if you do that, then you end up um, running out of money before you make it work. And, uh, you know, and, and then you've, def- then you've probably brilliantly defined a category for somebody else to come along five years later and take it. So, you know, I mean, I guess that's probably where the, what, how I would run with that. It's so interesting. And I want to sort of tease this out with you. Uh, not long ago, we had, um, Avram Miller on fall your different. Oh yeah. Old friend. Right. Uh, uh, the co-founder of Intel Capital, of course, and, and a real genius. And one of the things he said to me, and when he said it, it was like he clooned me on the head with it. He said, one of the great places to look for new startup opportunities is go to the past, look at high profile failures, ask yourself, why did they fail? And if they failed because conditions or environmental properties, so to speak, were not there yet, then ask yourself, have those environmental properties been resolved? And I'd never quite thought of it that way. But if you think one example that comes to mind, of course, is, is Webvan, right? They raised, yeah. I think, $200 million. They were going to be this online grocery right. store. They had these sophisticated warehouses and all that stuff. And it blew up. Well, fucking A, look at where we are today with digital delivery of groceries and everything to the home and all. They were absolutely right. They were just... 10 or 15, well, probably 15 years early, right? And so there is this interesting thing about look at the companies who got the adjacent possible wrong. That is to say, they were too visionary. They took a run at it. The world wasn't ready and or they couldn't figure out a point of view to get the world ready. And so it failed. And if by the change in environmental factors and by a materially improved category design and point of view to communicate the value of this new thing. If you put those two things together, the graveyard of failed startups 
is an interesting place to start looking for adjacent possible in the more near term. But uh, that's my synthesis of him and you. And I want to dump it on you and get your reaction. I'm just thinking there would be a, a hilarious book to do about, you know, good, good ideas from the graveyard of failures. <laughs> I would be, that would be a brilliant one. All right. I've, I, I've, be a whole, whole new term for, um, Ghost startups, right? right you know, or maybe right. it's more like um, maybe it's there's something Buddhist about coming back to life or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but and no, so, that's a great that's a great thought. Uh, well, somebody is somebody writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think this is being recorded. So oh, you good. Find, find it <laughs> Excellent. <again. laughs> um, and so, if I'm working on a category design, if I'm working on a new startup, a new innovation, and I'm, I want to be visionary. I want to be forward on my skis, but I don't want to be too visionary. I don't want to be web van. Uh, I want to be Airbnb, so to speak. So how do you think about the adjacent possible without being overly visionary? Where's that magic line between being forward on our skis, really painting a powerful new vision, driving the world with a set of powerful, as we call them, Frodo's from twos, but not being so visionary that we turn into a web van? Well, I, you know, I, I know when, uh, like when Mike and I are working with, you know, companies through CDA, um, and we, we often have this conversation and, and so you, you know, you, me, Mike, Al, I mean, we're not ever going to be the experts on that. Um, but we have to, we have to put that, uh, company's feet to the fire on that same question is to say, okay, well, we identified this thing. It sounds like it's way, you know, out here in the stars somewhere. Um, you know, let's be realistic now. Like, is that something you can do tomorrow? Is it something you can do in two years? Is it actually not something that's going to ever see the light of day for five or six years? If it's five or six years, then then that's not the right place to be right now. But the conversation that we then have is, um, uh, oh, oh, if you know, if you're like drawing this on a whiteboard or something, you're pointing, pointing to here's where, here's your idea. Here's it's, you know, six years out from the adjacent possible, whatever. What's the version of this that um, lands in the adjacent possible today, but ladders up to that, that vision eventually. And let's, let's understand what, first of all, what that, what that thing is today, what the ladder looks like. Um, and, and then you, put that five, six, seven year vision thing in your back pocket and don't even talk about it right now. Um, and land land that thing in the adjacent possible and know that you've got this ladder that you're going to start to follow and roll out over time um, and, and to drive towards that vision. Because, you know, and, and if that vision, that five, six year vision out, out there, if you can, if we can sit there in that room and say that thing is absolutely going to exist someday. It has to. I mean, it, it makes complete sense. We we now that we put our you know put some words in our, our our brains around it, we understand that that's something people are really going to want. It's going to exist, but it just can't exist now. Then that becomes a great north star to just put up there in the sky and say you know that's where we're marching to. But um, we're going to keep you know, going to keep that in our back pocket until people understand what we're doing right now. And so I think, thank you for that. I think what I hear you saying, Kev, is let's be very forward on our skis. Let's think about the likely different futures that could happen here, 
three, four, five, eight, ten years out. And as we do that, let's think. Let's be very smart, very nuanced, very rigorous around uh, what the nearer to midterm adjacent possible is. That is to say, how we be visionary, how we deliver a point of view that that moves people, that excites people, but that we can deliver on in the near to medium term. With a, uh, with a vision to, and then when that domino falls and the domino that falls after that falls and that one falls, we'll be able to stair step up into this even bigger right. category over time. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the, I mean, the, probably the greatest current example of how that worked was, is Netflix. And, and I used to talk to Reed Hastings back in the earliest, earliest days of Netflix, and he absolutely knew that at some point in time, movies and TV shows and everything were going to be delivered over streaming internet. Um, but he also was smart enough to know that it just didn't work yet um, at the time that he was building Netflix. So they they built this company on, you know, we're going to mail you DVDs. And, um, but he called the company friggin' Netflix for a reason. And, uh, um, and and he you know he knew that there was this ladder um, to get to this point where we are today, but you know first he focused on the business that worked, and and that blew our minds as it was right. We were all used to going and standing in line at Blockbuster, and suddenly we can just do this you know get these things in the mail. It was brilliant. So um, you know that's that's the way I would advise. Um, or I do advise you know end advising companies to, to think is you know, you see that thing as Redacings did of like, okay, well, someday we're going to be streaming these things over the internet. People are going to be able to watch movies on their laptops or smartphones or whatever, but it's just not going to happen for 10 or 12 years. And so it's stupid of us to build that today. And by the way, at that particular time, there were companies that were building that and they all failed because it didn't work. And people didn't understand They were beyond the near-term adjacent possible. Right, right. The other interesting thing from a, uh, and this is something that, uh, you know, there's so many things that uh, we could have put in Play Bigger, but, you know, with 300 pages, there's only so much you could do. But the idea of tying category and brand together, right? Most people, and we'll talk about the end of marketing in a sec, but most branding is completely asinine because it's not in support of a category design. Interestingly enough, Reed and Mark Randolph, the original founder and CEO, they didn't call the company mail flicks <laughs> right 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 because they would have fucked themselves if they called it mail flicks so they were it might not have been obvious to many at the time but they were signaling this beyond the adjacent possible future just with the name although most people didn't realize it when they didn't call the company mail flicks right right exactly no, exactly. So let's talk about the end of marketing. You've been writing about this. Um, let's unpack kind of what you think about what you mean by quote unquote, the end of marketing. Um, you know, of the, of the different points, this was the one that I came to late, most late, uh, most recently. Um, and, and I, I give a lot of credit to uh, Raji Thomas, who is the CEO of Sprinkler, a company we ended up working with. And, uh, and this was a big thing that he, he would always often talk about. So Sprinkler makes this software that goes out and, you know, listens to what's going on for, you know, about a company or a company's brand out on social media and through, you know, um, all sorts of other channels. 
Uh, also, you know, what's, you know, interactions with customers that call in or go through the website puts all of this together through this kind of unified platform so that the company can understand whatever company this is, like a consumer products company can understand what's going on with this brand, what products are failing, what, you know, how to fix it, how to fix relationships with customers, all these kinds of insights, right? All right. So the reason that one of the big reasons Raji said, was saying that this is so important is because, um, especially in these last five, seven years or so, um, what a brand or a company is no longer is what the company says it is. And it used to be that way, right? It used to be you'd create you'd Mad Men, you'd create commercials or you could make marketing campaigns. You tell people what the, what the company is and its image and it's, you know, how you're supposed to think about it. Um, but that's completely turned around because of, you know, social media and everybody's talking to everybody else. So uh, what, a, what a brand is today is what everybody else says it is, not what you say it is. And if that's true, then um, whoever is the the category winner in a particular category has two particular advantages. One is that it simply has more voices out there talking about it, and you know, and and, and getting other people to learn about that particular brand. It's not how much you spend on a marketing campaign; it's how many people you can get talking about your who you are and what you are. And the second piece of that is um, where this, this, these cognitive biases kick in is that uh, when we all decide something is the category winner and that's, that's the way the category should be. The, uh, the iPhone is the way a smartphone should be. Google is the way search should be. We've all decided that. And so if there's something that comes along that's competing with it, people's biases automatically are in favor of the one that they're already familiar with and they want to already choose. So they will more tend to say good things about the category winner and put down the category, you know, losers or competitors or whatever. Um, so there's, there's a bunch of reasons that this idea that um, your brand is what everybody else says it is. Your brand is not what you say it is becomes um, a really critical reason to be a category winner and to, you know, create and design a category so that other people believe that you are the, you know, their biases uh, basically land on you rather than someone else. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. It also, to me, and I'd be curious, because of course you are a legendary writer, the value and importance of a legendary POV point of view in category design as a result of what you just said is probably more important today than it was five years ago. And let, let me see if I can bounce this off you. Yeah. Yeah. So I accept everything you just said. And then in addition, I would say word of mouth was, is, and always will be the most important kind of marketing. And what I think I heard you say is because of a, the native digital world that we're now in, word of mouth, so to speak, the opinion of others scales globally overnight. Mm -hmm. It's kind of point A. Point B, if you believe word of mouth is the most powerful and you believe word of mouth is now like dramatically uh, more scalable and therefore uh, potent than it ever has been, the role of a POV is to put the right words in the right mouths. Oh, that's perfect. That's right. That's right. 
That is right. And if we fail as a company, we fail as a marketer, most importantly, we fail as a category designer in authoring a POV that our uh, most enthusiastic customers, fans, subscribers, users, you know, what Eddie Yoon calls super consumers, if we fail to give them the simple script to tell their friends why this new thing solves a problem or creates an opportunity that is worthy of, uh, of, uh, of jumping into, and therefore you should give it a try. If we don't give them the sheets of music to play the song, then they're going to do freeform jazz and, and freeform jazz doesn't scale, right? Cause it's like, well, if you, let's say you have, you start off with, you know, a lot has been written about you, all you need is a hundred fans or all you need is a thousand fans or whatever the fucking latest article about how many fans you need to get rolling is. Okay. So accept whatever number you want to accept, even if it's just a hundred, if you don't tell them, Hey, the song is jumping Jack flash in a, <laughs> right. But you, so in other words, you're not explicit about your POV that builds the strategic argument for the category in a way that they can repeat pretty quickly to their friends. You've kneecapped your business, but I'm curious as to your reaction. Well, no, I, I mean, I think that's completely spot on. Absolutely. And, and by the way, I, I'd add to that, that, um, uh, you know, for your listeners who, who don't know, a, a POV is... We don't this. have any listeners. It's just, just my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Sorry. I thought this was the end of friction, and we were like, you know, getting a global audience for. We're downloaded by one person in 190 countries, <laughs> and that person is just traveling around to 190 countries. Very busy person. <laughs> so a, a a a category POV uh, is a narrative story that sets up what the problem is to be solved, and, and what the solution looks like, and how the world works when that solution is put in place. And I think to your point about putting these the, this this uh, this thought into people's heads is it's that that uh, that sense that it's a narrative. That's what people can glom onto and understand. If you go out there in the market and say, "Here's our product, and it has these forty five features," mm -hmm. people can't repeat that and understand that, or even make sense of why necessarily why that's important to them. But if you go out there with a story that says, here's the problem that people are experiencing and, and here's what a solution can look like and how the world's a better place when that solution is put in, put in place, um, that's, that's a, a message that can, you know, narratives create wormholes in people's brains and, and, um, and then you have something to repeat to other people and, and you're going to get it right more likely than if you're trying to tell somebody here are the 45 features of this new gadget that somebody came out with. That's awesome. You, you said narratives or point of views create wormholes in people's brain. Is that what you just said? <laughs> That's what I said. I was trying to scribble it down as you were writing. I was like, wow, Kevin said another fucking genius thing. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the thing I find fascinating about you and all of this part of this discussion is, so, I mean, obviously, you're one of the godfathers of category design. You literally wrote the book. And you wrote the book after plus or minus, what, 25 years of experience being one of the top, hard, hard not to argue you weren't one of the top 10 business tech writers in the world at the time, certainly in the English world. And so, given your background and given what we just said, which is the role of the POV, particularly a simple one that can scale digitally as people talk about digitally the new thing 
when you sit there to go and create the point of view for one of your clients and you sort of synthesize all of this, what are the core tenets of authoring a point of view that will inherently be highly repeatable? That is to say, a point of view that does slide into the ear and slide out of the mouth such that we get armies of people communicating our POV and therefore you know, if the end of marketing is our is our is our super consumer customers, uh, sort of evangelizing the category digitally, how do you, when you sit there, how does that brain of yours sort of think about constructing a POV in the context of everything we just said? Uh, so you're asking Michael Jordan how he shoots a jump shot, and he usually can't explain it very well. <laughs> but, <laughs> Come so on, Michael. <laughs> Not to you know overinflate my whatever importance, but it's okay. I'll, I'll overinflate your importance for you. I, I say you're Michael Jordan. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I think there, I would say there are a couple of things that come to mind from what you just said. Um, so one is that, um, you know, we're always telling companies, here's one of the biggest arguments you always have with companies. The point of view we're going to write is not about your company. It's not about your product. It's not even going to mention your company or your product until the very end. What the point of view has to be about is about the problem and, and the solution, um, and and then at and, and then at the end, then you can say, and you know what, we're 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 doing this. Um, but uh, you know, another part of the end of marketing, which has been described by many over time too, is that this new generation increasingly um, uh, rejects advertising. They don't want to be told. Um, you know, in some smarmy, you know, marketing sort of way that this thing is better and does this or whatever, all these other things. So if you put in their heads this story of a problem that exists that they go, oh, yeah, I recognize that problem. I've, I've experienced it. And a solution that they didn't think was possible. But, oh, wow, you know, if that happens, then this problem gets, you know, goes away. That's that's the kind of meme that sticks, that people can um, can get their heads around and and repeat. Um, and 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 the other thing I would say, since you're you know, if you're asking like when I'm sitting down and writing these things, is that uh, the 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 way the way I construct a POV is um, it follows the the plot of like every superhero movie you ever seen. And you know, if you think about a Marvel movie or let's say a Batman movie is, you know, the, 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 the first scenes usually are with a Joker because the Joker comes into town and starts making a mess of everything. The Joker's a problem. And so you, you begin the POV by setting up that the Joker's in town and, you know, this is a real problem and, and describe what that's like, you know, and then only after you've done that, then the, you know, the bat signal goes up and you, and, and you, you introduce Batman as arriving on the scene and you, um, and then you show how you know, telling the story how Batman vanquishes this, this problem uh, by you know, you, maybe it's you know, your little touches of use by using this particular utility belt or his brains or his whatever it is. But and then what happens at the end of the movie once Batman wins is that then you say, here's how nice it is to live in Gotham City, you know, when this is gone and everything's back to normal. So that arc of introducing the criminal, the problem, you know, the joker in the beginning, introducing the, the hero, the solution, and, and telling the story of how this hero is going to vanquish this, this you know, problem, this villain. 
and conclude with now life is good again. Um, you know, that's, that's a plot and a plot is something that again, people can grasp. I love it. Thank you for that. And it, this may be a side note or maybe it's the point. I don't know. You'll tell me. I, I had this aha recently, you know, as you well know, I I'm dyslexic and I have just this and just that and dysphoria. <laughs> and, um, over the arc of my professional life, the amount of writing that I do just has increased exponentially over time. And, you know, I, I, of course, we're, we're, we're huge fans of the OG himself, Peter Drucker, and he famously said towards the end of his life when he was asked why he kept writing and why he kept speaking, that it was the only way he knew what he was thinking. Mm-hmm. And so when you have to put pen to paper and articulate um, the point of view, it forces a rigor in your thinking. And so where I'm leading to is my own personal journey, as we call it today, the importance of being able to sit, think about thinking, and then write to articulate it has increased exponentially over the arc of my professional life. I would, and, and my point is, I never would have thought at 18 when I started my first business how critical being able to write as a representation of clear, different, powerful thinking was going to become. Translation mm-hmm. said, said simply, for me to do what I do in life, I've had to become an increasingly better writer over time. Yeah, makes sense. And you, so you have that, I mean, you develop that skill set. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you might say to people about their own writing skill and, and how you think about writing in the context of moving the world forward via category design. Well, and, and it's funny because I used to, I don't, I don't know where it is, somewhere I have this plaque that um, was a quote from this, this historian named Daniel Borston, who also said, you know, I write to find out what I think. And and I, I am a great believer in that. Um, I don't think I ever really know what I think about, you know, a company or a situation or uh, anything until I sit down and, and try to write, write it out. And you get a lot of uh, CEOs who don't think that, um, you know, why would you write, why would you do that? Why would you write this POV or why would you write this narrative? Um, and think that it's just, um, I don't know, you know, another form of, you know, of marketing or something like that. But doing, but doing that exercise of writing it out um, and, and very carefully constructing this story and doing it, forcing yourself to do it within, you know, 800 or 1,000 words. So it's not like this long you know, exhaustive treatise. It does. That's, that's the thing. It forces discipline of thinking. That's why it's so important. And that's why, like, when we do these projects with clients, Mike and I sit in this room with the leadership team and present a POV that we wrote to them. And then the next five hours is us sitting in that room with them, going over every single line and getting everybody in the room to agree that every word is the right word before we're done. And then by the, by the time that's over, all of those people have absorbed that sort of discipline of thinking. They've all gotten on the same page uh, and they all believe in whatever this document now says. And that's really powerful. And that's, that's one of the biggest 
deliverables that we have as a as a as a you know a group working with companies is just that moment. Yes, thank thank you for that. So, I mean, clearly, I could talk to you about category design, writing the adjacent possible, um, the network effects, the data effects, the end of marketing, and, and, and all of it forever. <laughs> but I, I know you have uh, you have clients to go help. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on today in this conversation, Kev? Um, uh, you know, I, no, I mean, I think we, you know, we've, we've, we've covered a hell of a lot of territory <laughs> and, uh, but there, and there's like still, we you know, always there's do <laughs> so much more to talk about, but, um, but I think one of the things that you hit on right at the end is, is it really is a really important point to, to leave off with here is just, um, uh, how that exercise of thinking through this, you know, idea about a category and then putting words around it. Um, and, and getting buy-in from everybody um, that you're working with around those words is is a is a huge forcing function, a huge discipline or discipline thought function that ends up um, just getting everything on on track for a company. And um, and you know it's it's so easy to not do that. Um, and you know, so many companies and CEOs think they don't have the time to do that, or they, you know, it's just not important. But my God, it's it's one of the most important things you could do as as a leader. Amen, Hallelujah, brother. Well, thank you, Kev. Um, I hope you come back soon. I, I want you to know how deeply I always appreciate these conversations. I always have ever since you and I started doing our first little bits of work together. Oh, it's it's mutual and two way. <laughs> and it's it's awesome to be doing all this stuff with you and to be on this path together um, that I know both of us are going to be on for the rest of our lives. Who who knew when we started down all this work together that um, we were we were we were deciding <laughs> to go down the never ending road of category design forever you together. Didn't, you didn't know you're going to have me chained to you for like the rest <laughs> of your life. <laughs> I thought we were just having dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Maney, I love you. Thank you so much. Please come back soon, brother. I, oh, anytime. Absolutely. Well, there he is. My brother from another mother, the legendary Kevin Maney. His latest book is called Unhealthcare, a manifesto for health insurance. And of course, he is the co-author and one of the godfathers of category design because he wrote Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And I will forever be grateful to Kevin Maney for that and many other things. Coming up soon on Follow Your Different, one of my favorite entrepreneurs. His name is Iron Mike Stedman. And he's the founder of Ironbound Media in New Jersey. And he's a leader in podcasting. He's a leader in branding and marketing for entrepreneurs. And he is a champion for black veteran entrepreneurs. And um, he came over to see me in person. And we had a wonderful conversation sitting in our, uh, in our garden. That's coming up very soon. As well, America's favorite security guru, Morgan Wright, is back for a fun, scary, ADHD-type uh, conversation about all things risk and security. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Malibu Milk, the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. Did you know that almond milk is about 98% water and almost no almonds? And it turns out that almonds are horrible for our environment because it takes 15 gallons of water to produce just 16 almonds. And here in California, we have a water crisis. 
Flax, on the other hand, is different. It is eco-friendly and it is a superfood. And Malibu milk is the world's first whole plant, organic flax milk created by a mom. Go to MalibuMilkWithAY.com and give it a try. And on checkout, type in Different15. Malibu milk, the small tasty change that makes a big difference. Uh, And my friends at Bottleneck.online are the way to scale you. They are the leaders in distant assistance. If you want an assistant who's a human being, who's technology enabled, who's nowhere near you and never will get near you, check out bottleneck.online today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts, and the creators of this oddcast were absolutely consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. He's got a legendary new substack out called The Pivoteer. If you're thinking about a career change, a job change, life change, Jason has made many himself, and so he's putting his practical, hard-fought, uh, hard-knocks lessons out there for you. So go to uh, substack.com and search for The Pivoteer. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com are built by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. Remember to read Kevin Maney, listen to the Ramones, teach kids category design, uh, spread podcasts, not viruses. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott Omelonic, uh, editor of uh, Inc. I mean, Stink Magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. We do deeply appreciate it. Stay healthy. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.